0: One of my biggest recommendations is really about picking maybe four, five, six um, sort of big topics that are of interest to you, Um, something that's going to get like books written about it, not just social media posts, and really build up expertise in those topics and follow those well and build up that background knowledge so that you will have like the context to be able to Um, to notice when you come across something that's of low quality or that's manipulative or or just outright false. Don't really pay attention to most of the other stuff, right? Because you can't know about everything. Like you just only have so many hours in the day. You only have so much room in your brain. Um, And this model of trying to know a little bit about everything, I don't think that serves us well and it eats up so much of our time.
1: Hello, my friends. Welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm your host, Joanna LaFleur. This is episode 11 of 2023. We are officially over like 150 episodes at this point total. It's been really fun to stop counting seasons, but start counting uh, really by what we're doing as a whole. And I'm excited to bring you today's episode. We have Bonnie Christian on the episode today. And Bonnie is an experienced journalist. She's skilled at compelling opinion and writing. She does concise news delivery. She's a meticulous editor. But more than that, we're talking to her today about untrustworthy, the knowledge crisis breaking our brains, polluting our politics and corrupting Christian community. So basically, we are talking about how we all are disagreeing and churches or Christian relationships even are disintegrating over differences of opinion and politics. So it's a huge conversation, an important one for us to have today. So thank you so much to Compassion Canada, lifting children from poverty in Jesus' name, and to Scripture Untangled, which is a podcast by the Canadian Bible Society that I'm really proud to be part of. And these sponsors are making this podcast possible because we're talking about things that really matter. So Bonnie Christian, as we've said, she's she's a writer. She works for Christianity Today and The Week and USA Today and CNN and Politico and New York Times and Daily Beast and all these kind of things. But why? It's because she has something to say about how to bring us together. Like, how do we disagree about theology without kicking each other out of church? How do we have theological differences that do matter, but also how do we... Work against tribalism within the church, more and more subsections and sub-denominations of what we are already living with? How do we not splinter off more and more from each other? It's a hugely important conversation. So I hope you're going to enjoy and listen into the conversation now with Bonnie Christian. Bonnie Christian, welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm I'm glad to have you on the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, can you give us some context? Who Who is Bonnie Christian? (laughs) Give us some context on you before we uh, go too much farther.
0: Sure. Um, So I'm an author and journalist. Um, My most recent book is called Untrustworthy, The Knowledge Crisis Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting Christian Community. Um, And then a lot of the work I do on a day-to-day basis uh, is more in the journalism space. Uh, So for a long time, I was mainly at an outlet called The Week. Um, but I left there, uh, coming up on a year ago to go back to freelance. So I have a a column at Christianity today, and I'm writing pretty regularly for, uh, reason magazine, which is a libertarian leaning outlet, um, the daily beast, which is a, a more like left leaning politics and culture outlet. And then I also work with a foreign policy think tank called defense priorities. Mm. doing a, a weekly newsletter for them and some opinion work as well. Um, so that's what keeps me busy most of the time. And I do some some one-offs here and there on, on different topics and for different outlets as opportunities come along.
1: Well, you know, you're, even this bio that you're giving kind of intrigues me. It, it's maybe um, an interesting wade into the waters of the conversation today because you work for multiple news outlets. Um <laughs> and the world of journalism has, has changed. Um, I don't know how long you've been in this profession, but even in the time that you've been in, um, can you give us a sense of like, what has changed? Like, for example, you're not working for one outlet full time. Um, you're working for multiple. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what is the world of that look like for you or for others?
0: Yeah. Well, so journalism overhaul is not in a No, it's not a growth industry (laughs) right now. Um, As as we're speaking in early 2023, like the end of last year and then um, the month of January has seen a lot of layoffs at at major media outlets. The Washington Post just announced another 20 jobs getting cut, another 30 that they're not going to open positions that they're not going to fill. And that's after a a series of of pretty big cuts at at other prominent um, American outlets recently as well. Uh, And in in like the bigger picture, since, I want to say it's like 2008. Um, so of the last 15 years or so, more than a quarter of newsroom jobs in America have gone away. Um, mm. So overall, not, not doing super great. Um, for me personally, uh, I've been pretty fortunate as, as journalism careers go. Uh, I've mostly been freelance. Um, so even when I was primarily at The Week, Only about a year of that was as a full-time employee. Uh, Mm -hmm. And for the rest of that time, and this is over about a a 10-year span in journalism total, um, and about seven of those years I was at The Week, um, that was like one primary freelance uh, client, you could say, or role among several things that I was doing. Um, So for me, it's been normal to have sort of that more diversified base of work. Um, which has its advantages and disadvantages. The, the disadvantage is I have no paid sick leave or vacation time. Um, the advantage is, you know, a lot of control over my own schedule. And also when, you know, bad things happen in the industry, when layoffs happen, um, if I have three or four places I'm working with, maybe I lose one, but I still have the other three, right? right. Um, and I think that there are a lot of journalists who, who work that way um, and, and appreciate that sort of, a measure of insurance um, at this point.
1: But but no, on the other side of it, there's sort of, yeah, the, the job security or the, Mm -hmm. um, I know, I mean, with some of the people listening to this podcast, they're working in um, Christian vocations of some kind, whether they're pastors or charity leaders or, 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 worship or whatever it is. And, um, you know, a lot of churches are closing and some people are even mm-hmm. saying on that side, a different industry, but people are saying like, with all the changes in the world, are we going to have a job in a couple of years? Yeah. You know, are we going to go by vocational? So, so I think uh, there are people who, even if they're not in your industry can relate to vast cultural technology change has affected, um, many professions. Mm-hmm. Um, so what maybe is lost? Uh, let's not assume people would understand that. When, when someone isn't um, able to be full-time in uh, a particular uh, outlet, what, what is mm-hmm. sort of lost or, or missed in the journalistic process?
0: Yeah, I think it depends a lot on the kind of work you're doing. Um, mm-hmm. So I overwhelmingly do opinion writing um, and that can be, a, a pretty solo process where, you know, I speak with my editor, I say, here's a few ideas I have for something I could write about today that's timely for right now. And they say, I like this one. Then I go off and write it, you know, by myself, bring it back to them when it's done, they edit it and we publish it and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that works pretty well for, for the way that I do things like for being freelance, being not really in any one newsroom. It's very different though, if you're gonna be talking about uh, more reporting work, um, especially reporting work that requires you to be going out in person, like things you can't research, you can't do online from your home. If you wanna be doing like more in-depth investigations, if you wanna be like on the beat of going to, I don't know, city hall and like talking to the mayor and attending city council meetings, those kinds of jobs Really do are going to work much better with the, in that institutional context where you have the resources of the mm. newsroom, where you have a salary, right, so that you're being paid sort of for the whole of your work rather than for a discrete article, um, so that your travel expenses are being covered. So it's it's different for different kinds of journalism work, I think, um, and some some roles adapt more easily to like current industry industry pressures than others. And I mean, it's a, the question of the business model and how we'll pay the bills is a big outstanding question for the industry. And it's sort of, I think, behind the scenes for a lot of people on the, the audience side. Um, but it it's very much related to a lot of the problems that people perceive in the industry. And that more quote unquote boring or mundane reporting work, I think is um, perhaps uniquely vulnerable in some ways, because it's it's not bright and exciting and easy to get people to come pay for
1: it, right? Or and and in some cases just simply can't be done. Like for example, I mm-hmm. think of the like you use the local city council. Mm-hmm. There, you know, how do you know if there's a how do you, how how can we know if there's some sort of corruption or um, major environmental effect that's being made at those kinds of meetings? If no one is there, if no mm-hmm. one is, if no one can afford to sit and capture and contextualize this for other people. Right. And especially um,
0: cause it's a, it's a, you know, you're there because maybe something important will happen, right? right? Like yeah, you're not true. guaranteed to come away with a story. And so you have to have an outlet that says, yeah, we can afford to pay you to sit there and maybe something important comes out of it. And maybe you come away with nothing.
1: Mm. Um, so there's this whole shift that's happening and, and partly why the, this entire podcast, Word Made Digital, exists is to talk about major systemic cultural shifts and how the digital world and technology plays into that with our life, our faith. How we think and how we view things. So it's it's a we've been doing it for years, and it kind of meanders into many different um, trails. But in this particular conversation, um, we're talking about this book that really resonated with me uh, when I saw what you were writing about because untrustworthy, the knowledge crisis, breaking our brains, polluting our politics, corrupting Christian community. Um, maybe we before we go further into this whole conversation, um, can you name the crisis for us? Like what, what is going on?
0: (laughs) Yeah. So I think it's, it's that very, um, unfortunately familiar sense of sort of uncertainty or confusion or just, um, you know, not knowing what or who you can trust that, that many of us have felt when we are encountering consuming media, especially not exclusively, but especially digital media and, Again, especially, but not exclusively, political media. Um, that sense of, you know, there is so much of it. Uh, we can't possibly like process it all in any sort of rigorous way. We can't possibly be be sure that everything we're encountering is true. You, no one has time for all of that, but like fact-checking and research. Um, even those of us who, who work in the, you know, this is our jobs, don't have time to, to check everything that we encounter online. Um, and so that just leads to, like, the crisis is that sense of uncertainty of, of what can I believe? What can I trust? Um, you know, what voices should I be ignoring? What, what should I be listening to? And it has, it's not just something that happens in our minds and in our media consumption. It's also very much something that has relational effects and something that mm-hmm. has effects on how our politics play out, how, uh, you know, our, our congregations function, um, how we interact with our families, and so um, it's a—it's not just an intellectual crisis, though. Certainly, I think it begins there, but it, it spreads out into all these other parts of our lives as well.
1: Yeah, it's—it's it's an uh, what you're describing in part. Part of this is this complete overwhelm mm-hmm. <laughs> um, coming from every direction. Do you have a sense of the scale of that, or you know, if it's what we know, we don't know any different. Do you have a sense of? what the shift was or we might feel it in our levels of anxiety, but yeah. um, Yeah.
0: I mean, I think just thinking about it, like in terms of recent decades, right. So it's in the 1990s, about 30 years ago, we get the, the rise of like 24 hour news cycles on cable. So that's a, a huge part of it beginning there. And then the internet, as we know it is like the last 15, 20 years where particularly you have like the social media, Um, aspect as opposed to the the early internet. And then of course, getting everyone getting smartphones, that's 15 years max. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that is, I mean, it seems so obvious to say this, right? But it is such a huge shift because even when CNN starts doing 24 hour news in the nineties, your computer is not with you at the grocery store, right? Like you don't take your, sorry, your television, don't take your television out while you're waiting in line for 10 minutes, you do take out your phone um, and you have that information coming at you just at all times of the day or night It's always available. And so it's not just that there's so much more information out there, a lot of it making or assuming, you know, really big truth claims. Um, It's that it's coming at us constantly. And not only are we consuming it and able to consume it all the time, if we're so inclined, it also ropes us in to be like disseminators of it and to to like everyone play pundit all the time with, with the way that we share things. Um, and I I always think it's so interesting to think about how we would have regarded someone who shared newspaper articles in the same way, you know, 30 years ago. Mm. I remember every now and then someone would email me a newspaper clipping like when I was a child, like a teenager or something, I would just be like, why, why are you doing this? Why would you think I want this newspaper clipping? Yeah. Like it's, you know, by the time it gets to you it's several days old, it's like, (laughs) it's very weird to clip out a news out of something out of a newspaper. Right. But we do, we all, I mean, that's functionally what sharing an article on Facebook is we all do it all the time. And so that, um, that personal introduction of it, uh, the sense that someone whom you know and love and whose opinion you generally value has given this thing to you to read, you know, it it creates, it's number one, it sort of makes you let your guard down, right? You think, oh, well, so, so so-and-so has vetted this. I should, that's probably worthwhile for me. And number two, it, it creates a sense of like obligation of, oh, you know, she thinks this is an important cause. I should, I should read up on this. Um, and so we, we've just deluged ourselves in so much more than you know any of our ancestors ever encountered day in and day out. Um, and I think our our brains are literally
1: not able to handle it I want to pause the conversation with Bonnie because I think sometimes the Bible as a whole the reason we get divided over it is because the Bible can feel overwhelming and confusing and hard to believe Does that resonate with you? Well the latest season of Scripture untangled this is a podcast by the Canadian Bible Society I'm really proud to be part of it from the ground up and it's bringing you interviews with culture leaders leaders in ministry and Bible thinkers to inspire you you to dive into the Bible and understand it. We're trying to increase your Bible passion, your Bible literacy, your Bible understanding as we wrestle with Untangling Scripture. You, you can listen for free wherever you subscribe to podcasts where you're listening to this or watching this one, and you can visit scriptureuntangled.ca for more info. As always, the link will be down on the show notes, scriptureuntangled.ca. Back to the conversation now with Bonnie. Right i mean beyond beyond that uh our brains can't handle it it's t m i what are what is coming at us is um not always fair true accurate um a reflection of two sides you know without agenda you know uh, there's all that we all know the thing about fake news and the thing about grandma sending us a forward of uh, I don't know some Nigerian prince who wants to send us money, and you know, there's there's this such even just at its person to person level, there's so much junk out there, um, and and then there's good stuff too. So, <laughs> um, and, and maybe if I say further, this this thing that has happened more recently, where we've come to identify at an international level, um you know infiltration of of this garbage that like the untruths or the half truths into the media like being fed by foreign powers mm-hmm. to distort the truth or you know rile people up um i mean the question that i'm trying to get to here is uh what what on earth are we to do like how can we possibly in this context um is it just the answer, like, turn it all off? Like, <laughs> how can we get the news? I mean, that's the big question, I think, of your work here. Um, yeah, where do I we mean, go here?
0: <laughs> a lot of times I think that is the answer, uh, which, you know, I, I realize the irony of saying that as a journalist, but the reality is, like, <laughs> any of us should only be spending a certain amount of time on, mm. on this information every day. Um, in many cases, we're, we're – spending our, you know, hours and hours thinking about things that we can't possibly affect that have little to no effect on us. Um, you know, things that are happening halfway across the world. And it's not that they're unimportant. It's just that there are other things closer to us that, that we should be focused on instead, things that are happening actually in front of us, not on our screens. Um that said, I, you know, I don't think I think if, if you're someone who enjoys following the news, who is you know interested in politics. Um, and and I would note that I think there are a lot of folks who who are not actually <laughs> enjoying following the news, who are not actually interested in politics, but have this sense of like, to be a good citizen, I need to be well informed all the time. And what that looks like is sort of just like scanning all the daily headlines and not really reading anything in depth, but getting just sort of a vague sense of what's happening in the world. Mm-hmm. And I suggest that that level of kind of shallow news consumption is um, that is done sort of out of a sense of duty and you're not, you're not getting anything positive out of it. If that's you, I would say just, just really do turn it off. Like you don't need to to do that. And you're not really ending up that well-informed because it's, it's, it's such a shallow surface level knowledge that it makes you, I think more susceptible to misinformation, um, more susceptible to misleading arguments because you don't have that background knowledge for, like alarm bells to go off when you come across something false. But I think for those people who do do like like politics, um, those of us who do want to be looking at this, this stuff day in and day out, um, one of my biggest recommendations is really about picking maybe four, five, six um, sort of big topics that are of interest to you. Um, and by that, I mean something on the level of I don't know, healthcare policy or like the war in Ukraine, something pretty big that you can follow long-term um, something that's going to get like books written about it, not just mm. social media posts and really build up expertise in those topics and follow those well and build up that background knowledge mm. so that you will have like the context to be able to, um, to notice when you come across something that's of low quality or that's manipulative or, or just outright false. Um, and then, yeah, don't don't really pay attention to most of the other stuff, right? Because you can't know about everything. Like you just only have so many hours in the day. You only have so much room in your brain. Um, and this model of trying to know a little bit about everything, I don't think that serves us well, and it eats up so much of our time.
1: Yeah, it it of course it, it strikes me always this this thing we're trying to do is be like God who knows mm-hmm. all things. It's this human thing in us that wants to know more, and if not know all things or even on the social media stuff. It's like know all things, but be all places. You know, I'm mm-hmm. physically here, but I'm going to connect with people in all these other places. Don't, I'm not bound by physical time and space anymore. Um, there's, there's this thing in us that is human though. And it, and it can't contain all of every knowable topic on the news uh, circuit this week mm-hmm. has, has, you know, has the the news always been so political? What I mean is maybe partisan more mm. specifically. It seems like, well, there's the left and there's the right and there's some truth maybe in between the two of them, <laughs> but it feels like you almost have to pick a side and that's your version of the news. I'd love to hear your comment on that.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I can't uh, speak with confidence to, to media context outside the United States, here at least, there has been a shift. Though it's, I don't think it's quite such a simple story as, like, journalists used to be better and and more nonpartisan, and now we've mm-hmm. gotten worse. Um, so some of this is about back in the the mid twentieth century, um, per federal law, there was something called the fairness doctrine that required broadcast media, TV and radio, to get um, to get licensed they to broadcast they had to uh, if they were going to do news shows, they had to cover serious topics and they had to do so um, in a balanced way. And so what that meant in practice was basically interviewing Republicans and Democrats in pairs. Um, the Fairness Doctrine went away. I, I want to say it was around like the late 80s or early 90s. Um, so that's gone. And But I think even if, even without that shift, um, without that legal shift, the the way that technological changes and especially the internet has allowed us to diversify, like the the sheer number of media outlets has increased so much. Um, and that has really significantly changed the business model. So when you had, you know, three major national news stations, their business model, or you had one local newspaper, the business model was try to appeal pretty much to everybody right? Because that's who your audience is. It's pretty much everybody. And so the, the way to do that was to, to present what you at least claimed was a pretty neutral, um, unbiased, uh, balanced, we're going to show you both sides style of reporting. Whereas now uh, you can have a narrower audience and still succeed, right? So you can say like, I'm a conservative writing for, for other conservatives, or, you know, I'm a a liberal writing for other liberals or whatever the case may be. Um, you don't have to cast that broad net. And so that does free up, um, some of those, you know, formatting and and framing decisions. Right. Um, it's tricky, right? This is a chicken and an egg situation to say, well, when we had just those three outlets, did it make people more moderate because they were all hearing the same thing? Yeah, maybe to, to some degree it did. Um, and likewise, to some degree, having more polarized, more like divided and segmented fragmented media encourages more intense partisanship. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it, it flows the other way as well, right? And so it's not, not like a tidy thing one way or another. Um, I think that there are, it's not necessarily a, a bad thing uh, to have that that fragmentation. Um, it's not a bad thing to have people who are journalists who are open about their own biases and beliefs. I think in many cases that can actually be a good thing because if we know what a journalist believes, then it, that makes it that much easier to, to sort of figure out where they're likely to get things wrong, right? Like what are their characteristic errors going to be? What are, What is their perspective going to make them miss? Conversely also, what is it gonna make them notice that someone with a different perspective right. might not notice? Um, but there's a big difference between writing from, a, or, or talking or whatever from a specific perspective for a specific audience, with versus without a regard for truth. And, and so that's something that I think, uh, is, is the bigger, um, and more important thing. And, and so you, you specifically use the word partisanship. And, and I think when we, once we start talking about partisanship and now we're really looking at like acquisition of power, um, and that's where a real tension is going to come into play with regard for truth, right? Because there's a, a prize to be won, which is not just, uh, you know, conveying conveying the truth, um, and so I think that's it's 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 really more that aspect, as opposed to just journalists having political opinions that leads people to to feeling like there's something very wrong here.
1: Right, and so. <laughs> It ultimately leads me to you know where do we you know how do we go anywhere from here I love this idea of you saying focusing in on a few key issues mm-hmm. um, and becoming more expert at those because we can't know them all I think that's a fantastic and very practical thing to do um, one of the things that I think of is a constant key issue at, that's in my mind right now is um, the issue of like police brutality race relations mm-hmm. um as we record, there is a current. There seems to always be another. There's a current story of uh, the videotape of the guy getting beaten up, the black man getting beaten up by a bunch of cops. Mm-hmm. In this case, the cops are also black,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, African American, and um, you know, and so in the media, I'm observing they're saying. It feels like sometimes the media has nothing to talk about. The day before they're saying they're going tomorrow, release this video. The video is coming out tomorrow and, and the, um, the, the governing bodies are preparing for the mob. Uh, so, Hey, like no one even knew this video existed, but now we're letting you know the video's coming out and we're putting up fencing in case you become a mob. <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to get at is like, are we creating the very thing, you know, through doing this, it seems like in some ways creating the reaction you said you didn't want by preparing people for it in this particular way. I'd I'd love your comment on that, whether this particular... Um story we're watching play out this week. Um, or um, just broadly, this seems to happen over and over,
0: yeah. I mean, in that case, I would say, uh, given the the pattern of what's happened with with other uh, police killings, especially of unarmed people, it, probably there would be a protest, you know,, yeah. no matter what. um, and so, uh, the, the the local authorities putting up fences or, or whatever defenses they're going to do, um, they're probably not wrong that it would happen. There, there is certainly like a, a tricky question around to what extent does covering bad things exacerbate the situation, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, there was recently a, a controversy um, on Twitter so I'm a, a columnist of Christianity today. I'm not, uh, I'm freelance. I'm not in the newsroom. You know, I, I'm not making decisions about what anyone else covers except for what I write. Um, but the, at the end of the year, the outlet put together some lists of like, you know, these were our most read stories in these different categories for 2022, pretty common thing to do. And one of the, the lists, and I, I want to say it was based on overall like traffic to these stories Um, so it might've just been like, these were our most popular news stories of the year, something like that. Um, a preponderance of the stories were stories of prominent Christian figures and institutions that had been caught in some kind of abuse or scandal.
1: Mm.
0: Um, and, and this became, this list became a controversy because people were saying on Twitter, like, it, that it reflected poorly on Christianity today that these were the top stories. Like, why are all of your top story scandals? Um, why isn't it something positive? Like why mm-hmm. aren't your top stories about like, you know, ordinary Christian faithfulness in, in small churches that no one's ever heard of. Um, <laughs> and
1: <laughs> it well, sounds boring. I mean, Just yeah. There's a, yeah. <laughs>
0: there's a, there's a lot of answers. One is that, you know, I, uh, that's not news. <laughs> typically, um, people normal people doing normal things is, is generally not uh, not what makes the news. Um, but you know, it's it's. I think the the bigger issue is you know these were not the top stories because the Christianity Today staff was like, let's make a list of the stories we liked the most and what we most enjoyed covering. They were the top stories because they felt an obligation to cover these stories as like a major national Christian outlet. It would have been worse to ignore them, right? Like if Christianity today refused to report on these scandals, that would be much worse. And they were top stories because of traffic because that's what people chose to read. Um, And so, you know, I think it's an audience side issue to a real degree. And so I think there is definitely a case um, for Considering how much we need to read <laughs> the, some of these stories, um, you know, not that the information shouldn't be out there, but at an individual level as readers, like, is this something that I need to to know about this time? Um, but from a from a, the journalist side, you know, I, I think that uh, there's a lot of things where there's a, there's a perception perhaps that we're making choices about what to cover out of an agenda. And in, in reality, it's, it's frequently much more about like, this is of such import that we have to cover it. Um, even though we know giving it more attention, you know, is gonna perhaps lead to more escalation or, or lead to more anger. Um, but it is, you know, just sort of objectively important and needs, needs to not be ignored. Hmm.
1: And so because you're talking specifically about a Christian news outlet, Christianity Today, um, it leads me to ask you about Christian communities and how we navigate this. It seems like even on a personal level, it feels challenging to navigate, to know what's true, to understand how to be more informed on issues. But then there are, issues that it would be important for a Christian community to have discussion, teaching, Mm -hmm. um, opinion perhaps on. Mm -hmm. But there is like, I, I, you don't often see it done well. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, how do we navigate this as Christian communities, as churches or as um, as a Bible study group, you know, arguing about, or not wanting to argue about something. So we don't even talk about it. How do, how do we, how do we go there?
0: Yeah. I don't know if it's possible to give sort of big sweeping rules that will work for all, all communities, all congregations, two things that do come to mind though, are one, you mentioned small group discussions. And I think that frequently is going to tend to be sort of the best format for discussions around the kind of things we're talking about here. Um, better than Sunday morning where, you know, you have one speaker, everything is like sort of on a large scale. You don't know exactly who's there. You don't know where they are in their faith. You don't know if they have like someone they can talk things out with, whereas a small group context where people are very familiar with one another, people are willing to give each other grace when someone says something that they disagree with. I think that is generally speaking, going to be the most appropriate context for this sort of thing. Um, and the other thing that comes to mind is, to what extent is the, the topic in question actually important in your local community? Um, and so to give an example, uh, since we're already on the subject of police brutality, um, the, the church that we were in uh, when I lived in Minnesota for several years, um, we were there during the, the killing of Philando Castile. Um, and this was the story of the, um, the young man who worked at a a school cafeteria. He was, um, like very beloved, um, among the students. He was out driving with, I believe his girlfriend and her daughter got pulled over in a routine traffic stop, um, informed the officer that he had a a gun and it was all like legally in order and appropriate and fine. And the officer got, uh, you know, very panicked and, and ended up shooting him and it was all on camera. Um, and so that happened about two miles from where our church was, and we had a, a member wow. of the community uh, whose child knew uh, Philando Castile at his school. Um, and so there was a very direct connection. It was very much, you know, in our town, in our, you know, by a couple steps removed, but in our circles. Um, and so that was something that we thought it was appropriate to talk about, you know, and like that was, that was very, um, very much close to us and, and something that we could directly affect, you know, we could directly contribute to, as they were fundraising for his family to help them deal with, you know, legal battles and lost income and all this sort of thing. Whereas when there were other police brutality deaths around the same time in other parts of the country, it wasn't that we were deliberately ignoring them, of course, right? But it—it it didn't. we didn't think that it made sense to give them the same degree of congregational attention because they mm. weren't in our community in the same way. Mm. And so I think that question of local proximity and what can you as a community concretely do to help here, that can be an important guide for, you know, is this something that rises to the level of things we need to discuss as a congregation as opposed to things members of our community might discuss just based on mutual personal interest
1: transformation I think it can feel a lot like a buzzword these days like what does transformation even look like well one of the places that I have seen transformation evident is in the stories of former Compassion sponsored children that is graduates or alumni of Compassion's programs who are now adults and they're telling their story about how sponsorship actually impacted them. I've had an opportunity to meet some of these people like Ria. She's originally from the Philippines and she's had this impact in her life because she was sponsored as a child and is now an adult. And she says, knowing someone who has never met you, that they see you, that they care for you it fundamentally changes you. Rhea's story is a powerful highlight about how being sponsored, built Christ-like confidence in her that empowered her to take hold of a future free from poverty, breaking cycles of poverty in her family. So today, she's a passionate advocate for kids and I love this, sponsors a child from her own village, that same community where she grew up. She's breaking cycles of poverty for another family in the community where she came from. So child sponsorship does transform lives you can find out more about Rhea and other people like her, these alumni, and you could read the stories of what this did for them and how you can be a part of it. Go to compassion.ca slash if only compassion.ca slash if only. And of course the link is down in the show notes. Right. Well, that's an interesting filter um, and rule of thumb, you know, to what degree is it about our own local community? Because um, I think some of the other criticism that um, a church or can feel is like, well, you posted on social media about this issue, but mm-hmm. don't you know there's thousands of people dying every day in this insert place far away in the world and you're not mm-hmm. outraged about that? It's mm-hmm. like we're outraged that you're not outraged or <laughs> outraged that you're outraged at the wrong thing <laughs> or, yeah. or not enough things. Mm-hmm. Um it, it feels challenging to know in a community context how to even speak about the issue that you do care about and feel informed about because by nature of that you can't be informed about all the other ones. <laughs> yeah.
0: And there's a, there's a really great quote from CS Lewis that I, I put in my book. Um, he, he wrote it in a letter and it was right after the end of World War II. So you know this was not um, coming from a place of like naivete about there being bad things in the world. Um, But his his argument was basically like, you know, I think you need to know and try to help the, you know, the sick and the wounded and the hurting in your own community, Um, but to focus. But we don't need to actually, you know, know and be just sort of having a constant ambient worry about things that are happening across the world from us. And it's not that they're unimportant, but it's that. There are more pressing for you, more pressing local concerns, things mm-hmm. that you can actually do something about, and that it can even get to a point where we feel, you know, we, we spend so much time and we feel so righteous worrying about these faraway things where we have no direct impact, um, that that can sort of replace the things that we actually should be doing. Um, you know, we feel like we've done our good deed by being worried about what's happening, you know, 10,000 miles away. Um, when two houses down from us, right? There's like someone who actually needs help that we're ignoring.
1: Yeah, it it's, you know, it can feel easy and, um, and noble to care about things, you're right. But it's a lot harder to do the hard, hands-on work in our own communities that, of course, if we all focused locally, the whole world would be impacted uh, if everyone was in their own local community. But nothing is is so simple these days. Um, I'm curious around this idea that I actually heard Tim Keller, uh, pastor author commenting on recently about when he was coming to faith, a lot of, uh, he was sort of critiquing um, a surface level or lack of intellectualism within evangelical hmm. churches in America. He said, American evangelicalism is, is, um, is not intellectual, and he gave some context to that to do with um, um, when, like when the faith was moving westwardly with these Europeans um, who mm-hmm. were immigrating to America. Um, they couldn't go back if they were converts. They were doing this, like you know, simplistic gospel. Mm-hmm. And they didn't have time or luxury to send those people to eight years of seminary training. It Mm -hmm. was like they seem, you know, filled with the Holy Spirit in some form and they can talk well. So let that guy, it's usually a guy, let the man lead us. Mm -hmm. Um, But he may or may not actually be trained, educated, you know, in like a Mm -hmm. rigorous way that would have been historically the way it would have been in, you know, their home countries as a religious Mm -hmm. leader. And so he gives some context for how it evolved. um, But he comments that he, when he was becoming Christian, um, was largely reading like British thinkers, like, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned, C.S. Lewis or Stott Mm -hmm. or, or some of these various other thinkers. And so here we are today, a few hundred years after those, you know, pioneers in the wagons across America, you know, missionaries or whatever they were, there were lots of problems with that. Um, So what are you finding about that today when people are sort of, do you feel like there's now going to a counterbalance, like uh, that there was historically not a lot of intellectualism? Do you, you, are you seeing a thirst for that in people? Do people want more knowledge or are they just equally uninformed (laughs) (laughs) in too many different directions?
0: Unfortunately, I, I think it is a little bit more of the latter. I would say, so, you know, in, in the, the, scenario you're talking about, maybe the Bible is literally the only book you have. You Mm -hmm. have, you know, no one who has, um, more deeper knowledge in, in scripture or, you know, the original languages or, or the history or what have you, like the, the, the problem is a a real lack of available resources. Even if you Mm -hmm. want to know more, you just don't have other books. Um, whereas now we have, you know, this overwhelming glut of information. And I think, We've, we've become very used to taking in information all the time. And, and, you know, for many of us, we, we do read constantly, like we're, we're always reading something, right. But it matters what and how we're reading. And so we tend to be reading things in very short snippets, um, you know, especially on social media, but it's also very common. Um, even if someone opens like something, a more substantive article, uh, it's very common for people to read two or three paragraphs and just leave. Right. Um, so you're not even reading the full like 800 word article. You're getting 200 words. Especially
1: maybe. if you could only read the beginning before you.
0: Can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I think that starts to train our brains. Right. And so then it becomes like physically difficult to sit down and read a full book and to not pick up your phone between every section or every chapter and not get distracted. Um, and so we are reading all the time, but we're not reading like deep, sustained, like intellectual arguments. We're not, uh, really like analyzing and and reflecting on what we're taking in. It's just sort of like passing through. Um, we're just kind of like drifting along with what we encounter. And so we have far more information, but we're not organizing. We're not interrogating. We're not analyzing it. Um, and so I don't, know that that actually, we feel smarter probably, (laughs) but I don't know that it actually helps with that, that problem of anti-intellectualism. Um, because what we're doing is we're not really engaging in an intellectual exercise so much as like consumption, um, and, and very, very passive encounters with, with knowledge, which is not, um, it, it has advantages in some ways, obviously over having, you know, just one book, um, but it also has real disadvantages. And I don't know
1: that we end up on balance better off. Mm. The, the last chapter of your book, uh, a breath, <laughs> how can we take a breath? Um, can you guide us through um, where you land here and as sort of an encouragement or um, an invitation to, to the rest of us who are listening?
0: Sure. So the, the name comes from another British uh, theologian, mm-hmm. G.K. Chesterton, and it, it comes from a passage where he's talking about, you know, if you have a friend who's who's really like deluded, believes wild stuff, um, you you should not try to argue him out of his beliefs because you will never succeed he has an answer for everything it makes sense to him nothing you can say because you're constrained by facts and reality right whereas he can just say whatever he wants and so he'll always win the argument or at least believe to himself that he's won the argument and so he says instead of trying to 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 do that what you should try to do is is like open a window basically give him a breath of fresh air remind him that there is a whole bigger world outside of this delusion that he's gotten himself into and that there are so many other and better things that he could be doing rather than just going deeper into this, Mm. you know, ever narrower and lonelier um, delusional space that, that he's walled himself into. And so, you know, as a opinion writer, I do spend a lot of my time um, building arguments. It's not that I think arguments are, not worthwhile, um, you know. It is a good thing to try to persuade someone, but there is a very big difference between trying to persuade someone who's who's come to something you've written and said, "Let me give this a fair shake and see if I find what's here worthwhile," versus just arguing with people all the time. And I think so many of us are inclination when we see um, in our loved ones or in our, our church communities or what have you, we see people believing things that we think are wrong or nonsensical. We just we think, well, I can argue them out of it, and that just adds to this uh, dissension and 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 this sense that politics is creeping into our lives and ruining like just things where it, there shouldn't even be politics there, right? And so, the the final chapter, this idea of, of giving a breath, is, is very much about uh, offering that that breath to each other, uh, you know, in in Christian community. Um, doing things together, uh, simple, easy things, you know, like having a potluck with each other, going on a walk, talking about literally anything but politics, your, your kids, your dogs, your vacations, whatever, um, that can remind you that there is this whole other world out there and that you have other, other pleasures and other obligations that are not on your phone screen um, and that is a very slow <laughs> recommendation. It is not a quick fix and it is definitely not a large scale fix, right? Like it's not something that we can just magically apply to everyone who's using Facebook too much, everyone who's using Twitter too much. It's, it's necessarily very, very small and very time consuming and long term and local. Um, and so in that sense, you know, something that is very suited to happening within the church.
1: Bonnie. Uh, as we take a breath, and I hope everyone's going to go outside today and feel the sun on their face or the wind. If there's no sun, maybe feel a breeze. Uh, <laughs> you know, Ronnie, where where can we find you or find your work? Um, where do you want to send people on the internet today?
0: Oh, man. <laughs> love sending people places on the internet <laughs> uh, for, uh, for all my... Um, qualms about it. I am on social media. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter just by searching uh, Bonnie Christian. And the last name is spelled with a K, K K-R-I-S-T-I-A-N. And I also have a a weekly Substack newsletter, bonniechristian.substack.com, where I put some, some original writing and also include roundups of all the work that I'm writing, the articles I have publishing in, in, as we've discussed, various other outlets elsewhere. Um, So that's a good
1: uh, unified place to find all that stuff. Awesome, Bonnie, thanks so much. An important conversation. I think one that matters for our time, matters for our churches, matters uh, for our souls, if I may say. So thanks so much for writing on it, thinking on it, and um, offering us some really practical things today of how we can move ahead in a better way. Thanks. Yeah, thank you again. Bonnie Christian, thanks so much for joining on the podcast. An important and intellectual conversation. But I think about what Jesus says that we will be known as his followers. The world will believe if we love one another. And so hugely important conversation. Thanks for bringing it. Next up on the podcast, we have my friend, James Adams. James Adams was the founder of Visual Media Church, and he was on the podcast, I believe season two of the podcast years ago now, talking about the company that he was just starting to build. He and I did a podcast together called Future Church back in the day, and he has sold the company. And we're going to be talking about entrepreneurship. We're talking about leadership, how he built his team from the ground up with zero training up to being experts in their industry and media. We're going to be talking about how to grow a company to sell, how to take calculated risks. We're going to talk about all of that. You're going to love the conversation next week with James Adams. Meanwhile, thanks so much, of course, to our sponsors, to Compassion Canada lifting children from poverty in Jesus' name. And the Canadian Bible Society, their new podcast, Scripture Untangled. If you want to love the Bible, know the Bible, increase your Bible understanding, untangle Scripture together, check out that podcast. And we will see you next week with James Adams.